I'm Steve Forbes, and this is What's Ahead. With Christmas just around the corner, I've got a special guest for you today, Lawrence W. Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education, to talk about his new book, Was Jesus a Socialist? Why this question is being asked again, and why the answer is almost always wrong. But first, what's ahead? COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations, and deaths have been soaring with the advent of cold weather. But there are two big actions that would be very helpful in responding to this terrible crisis. First, with vaccines now a reality, priority should be given to the people most likely to die from the disease. That is, start with the elderly and work down from there. Only 17% of Americans are above the age of 64, yet this group accounts for 80% of pandemic fatalities. Those aged 85 and above make up only 2% of the population, but about 33% of the COVID deaths. That cohort should be vaccinated first. Obviously, shots should also go initially to nursing home caregivers and others treating pandemic patients, but the focus should be on the most vulnerable. After the elderly, priority should be given to people with underlying conditions. Disgracefully, the FDA made the deadly decision to dawdle with its final approval of the Pfizer vaccine for public relations and political reasons, this has cost lives. The message going forward should be stark. No more politics and move with all deliberate speed. By contrast, the United Kingdom has already begun a national launch of inoculations with the Pfizer version. Several million will have been administered by year's end. Unfortunately, in this imperfect world, some people will suffer what could be serious side effects But overall, these vaccines, when administered, will save countless lives here and around the world. The second big thing to lessen the damage of this surge is for politicians to stop imposing harmful, unscientific dictates in response. The most conspicuous example is barring or restricting kids from physically attending school. Politicians are following orders from teachers' unions, intent on shaking them down for more money. European schools are open, and so are those in Japan and elsewhere in the world with no harm done. Also, there have been no consequential differences, amazingly, between places that aggressively locked down and those that didn't. Nonetheless, Illinois, Michigan, California, and other places are locking down in bulldozer fashion, gratuitously destroying small businesses while harming the financial and mental health of millions of people. The worst is California, whose idiocies know no bounds, such as outlawing outdoor dining when the evidence that eating in the open air doesn't propagate COVID. Not far behind is New York's ill-tempered autocratic Governor Andrew Cuomo, who has taken to dictating what kinds of foods eateries and bars must serve. COVID-19 is ghastly enough without the harm being inflicted by power-hungry politicians and politics-playing government health agencies. And now my interview with Larry Reed. My special guest today is Lawrence Reed. He likes to go by Larry Reed. He is the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education, where he served as the head knocker there for 10 years. He was founding president of the Mackinac Center of Public Policy in Michigan. He's an author, economist, a great teacher, and he's got a new book out called, and it's appropriate for the holiday season, Was Jesus a Socialist? Why this question is being asked again, and why the answer is almost always wrong. 
Uh, Larry, before getting to the book, describe briefly your own journey, starting with what happened in Prague in 1968 in the Soviet Union. You had quite a wanderlust as a young man traveling around the world to uh, trouble spots and places where you thought uh, freedom was in jeopardy. Tell us how uh, the Prague Spring in 68 and the Soviet Union crushing it with thousands of troops. How did that turn your life? Okay, thank you very much, Steve, for having me today. It's a great honor to be with you. And you're right. Uh, I credit the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia with really starting my career uh, promoting uh, freedom and free markets. I was only uh, 15 at the time, maybe uh, not quite 15. I had been watching uh, the unfolding of so-called Prague Spring for several months in 1968. And uh, because uh, my mother had required me to see The Sound of Music a couple of years before, and I from that movie gained an appreciation for freedom and a distaste for totalitarians, uh, I took an interest in what was happening in Prague Spring, and I was cheering on the Czechs. And I remember very vividly when Brezhnev from the Soviet Union met with uh, Mr. Dubček from Czechoslovakia. He, he was the uh, leader at the time, a communist who the communists later thought was a turncoat because he actually wanted some freedom for his people. Yeah, and he'd been pushing for uh, in increasing freedoms of speech and press and assembly and even began some early discussions of the possibility of future free elections. Well, the Soviets, of course, uh, couldn't abide that. And uh, the night that they invaded, I recall very vividly, my father had the radio on at about 10 o'clock at night, and uh, he called for me to come and listen. And we heard those first reports of Soviet troops crossing the Czech border. Well, I was livid about that, but you know, what can a 14-year-old do? But within a few days, there was a story in our local newspaper there in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, that talked about a youth group that was going to have a demonstration in Pittsburgh a few days later to protest the Soviet invasion. So I got a bus ticket. I went up to Pittsburgh, about 30 miles away, and joined in the demonstration. We burned a Soviet flag in Mellon Square, downtown Pittsburgh, and I was on my way. And at that time, the group that I joined, Young Americans for Freedom, now Young Americans Foundation, Whenever you became a new member at that time, they would send you a package of reading material. Much of it was from the Foundation for Economic Education, including Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson and uh, Henry Grady Weaver's The Mainspring of Human Progress, Frederick Bastiat's The Law, and so forth. And the message was, if you want to be a good anti-communist, you can't just oppose tanks in the street. You've got to know your economics, your history, your moral philosophy, and so forth. So I devoured those things and decided early on that in one way or another, teaching or in some other capacity, I would make the promotion of liberty the centerpiece of my life. Fantastic. And uh, getting to uh, the topic of your book, you uh, make the point, of course, Jesus was not a socialist. He wasn't a capitalist. He wasn't a libertarian. Those uh, words weren't part of the lexicon. They didn't come around to 1,800 years after his crucifixion. But uh, the point, of course, is compassion, uh, to use an overused word. But uh, let's first take on socialism itself, which is making a comeback. And it has, despite its uh, manifest failures in the countries that have uh, tried it, it has this image of being warm, fuzzy, compassionate, helping people, generous, 
And so, yeah, it may have its shortcomings, but unlike the hard, cold capitalist uh, system, profits before people, its heart's in the right place. And young people, as you point out in the book and elsewhere, are idealistic. They want to uh, have a purpose in life. They want to help people. So uh, to find the attraction of socialism, even though its practice in the world has been uh, rather bloody and murderous. You're right, Steve. A lot of people think very superficially that socialism is caring and sharing and giving people things and helping them and so forth. But if that's all it was, you should be for its opposite, capitalism, because there's more caring and sharing and giving under capitalism than there ever is under socialism. If that's all it is, just caring and sharing, well, then uh, who isn't a socialist? <laughs> but uh, I like to make the distinction between socialism and its opposite, capitalism, and thereby illuminate the very essence of socialism in the process uh, through an analogy involving uh, the Girl Scouts. If there are two Girl Scouts who come to your door and they say, would you like to buy some cookies? And if you get to say yes or no, that's capitalism. But if those same two Girl Scouts show up with a SWAT team behind them and they say to you, you're going to buy these cookies, you're going to eat them and you're going to like them <laughs> or else, that looks a lot more like socialism. And by that analogy, what I'm trying to drive home is that socialism is force. It isn't happy talk. It isn't just compassion, caring, giving stuff away. It's the use of force to accomplish certain objectives, things like the redistribution of wealth or the uh, government ownership of the means of production or the uh, central planning of the economy. And none of that is ever voluntary under socialism. It isn't socialist. If you just listen to them, they don't have a laundry list of suggestions that they hope you'll accept. They have a laundry list of proposals they intend to impose uh, with penalties if you don't comply. So it's important to remember that if it's voluntary, it's not socialism. You can do that under capitalism. If it's force-driven, the likelihood is that it's socialist. Now, uh, people say, okay, the North Korea, Cuba, Soviet Union, which killed tens of millions of people, Maoist China killed uh, tens of millions of people, even more than uh, the Soviet Union did. That wasn't real socialism. Then they point to Venezuela 10 years ago. Well, that has turned into a disaster. But then they fall back on, well, look at Europe, especially Scandinavia. It's just uh, safety nets, making sure you have a pension, uh, health care, college. What's wrong with that? Yeah, you're right. The definition of socialism, even to socialists, has not remained the same from the days of, say, uh, Karl Marx. Well, as you say, it's called socialism until it doesn't work. That's right. Then they call it something else. It's just this endless phenomenon of where socialists say, ah, oh, we've got the right guys in charge this time. They're going to do magical things here. And then when it falls apart, as it does invariably, then they say, well, they didn't quite get it right. We'll get it right the next time, which I think is a failure to really come to grips with what socialism actually produces. It's, it suggests that to many socialists, it's sort of a, a a dream, you know, or a, a cloud in the sky that is constantly changing its shape. Socialism is the employment of concentrated power, which reduces to force for the achievement of the centralization of the economy, the concentration of uh, political power over the economy, or the redistribution of wealth, or the um, government ownership of the means of production. That's, that's what it is. Some people say, well, what about Scandinavia, as you suggested? Well, uh, they're about 40 years out of date. 
because there was a time in the 20th century when after considerable capitalism and prosperity that it produced, Scandinavian countries then decided, let's go the welfare state route. And they began raising taxes and increasing the number of uh, programs to uh, give uh, people's various benefits at taxpayers' expense. Well, then about uh, 40, maybe 30 years ago, they decided this isn't working. It's driving productive people out of uh, the region, out of our countries. And so they have since brought down tax rates, pared back their welfare benefits, and now they are among the freest or most capitalist countries uh, in the world, according to the Index of Economic Freedom. Denmark is actually a couple points ahead of the United States in terms of its degree of economic freedom or non-socialism, you might say. Well, didn't the prime minister of Denmark, when uh, socialism came to the fore again in the U.S. uh, about a year and a half ago, make the point publicly, Denmark is not socialist. Stop it. Exactly. <laughs> he complained. He said, quit calling us that because we are, we are, he said, a market economy. And he's exactly right. They are globalized. They engage in trade. They don't bail out their companies when they get in trouble with taxpayer money. There isn't even a state-mandated minimum wage in Scandinavian countries. They have more school choice than we have in America, by and large. And uh, Sweden doesn't even have... Uh, an inheritance tax. Yeah, yeah. So people who say, well, we should copy Scandinavia because they're an example of socialism that works, they're 40 years out of date in terms of when Scandinavia had even a hint of socialism. And they, of course, don't understand that the Scandinavians themselves rejected it, found it too costly and too demoralizing. The point you made uh, that these countries got their wealth first by being a very free market. Yeah. Low taxes, little regulation. They got rich and decided uh, they could go the other route, and then they've since retreated. Yeah. You know, if, Steve, if I could just add, uh, since you raise an important point, socialism and socialists have no theory of wealth creation. I was just going to get to that because that is uh, crucial. They sort of assume that it's there. Like when you go to the supermarket and you see a carton of milk, you just assume it's there. You have no idea about raising the cow, milking the cow, pasteurizing the milk, uh, packaging the milk, delivering the milk, that just sort of magically appears. It's there. Yeah, which is a very childish view of the world. That's not the way the world works. This is not the Garden of Eden. We have to work. We have to invest. We have to take risks. We have to be entrepreneurial. We have to produce and employ and invent and innovate. And all those things we talk about as free market economists because we know that's where wealth comes from. But socialists just assume that, no, it's, it's, it's just there and it's waiting for us to come along and grab it and redistribute it. People sometimes like to say either you're for no safety net, no uh, social insurance, uh, sort of a Wild West dog-eat-dog world, or this compassionate, overwhelming socialism. No, you can uh, have, as the Scandinavians and others show, if you want welfare benefits and the like, fine, but you have to have a productive economy, which means more benign regulation, more benign taxes, and you can get the wealth to uh, redistribute, but you first have to create it. That's right. And and to talk about dog-eat-dog, what about Venezuela, socialist Venezuela? I don't even know if there are any dogs left for anybody to eat there. Uh, But there, the socialists came to power with the promise to uh, take care of the poor and to hate the rich and redistribute income and produce a wealthier Venezuela. But as in case after case, what socialism effectively does is just 
devour the seed corn. And people of any productive uh, capability uh, look for escape hatches. People will then ask, well, are you against unemployment insurance? Are you against uh, food stamps? Are you against uh, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, Social Security? Are you uh, one of these heartless people who say uh, you get in trouble, you're on your own? (laughs) Yeah. uh, You know, take food stamps, for instance. Some of the people who say the very thing you've just said. Uh, and who are big fans of things like the food stamp program, wouldn't it be great if we could get them to apply the same thing to education? Instead of having the state monopolize education, why not simply say, well, let that be provided privately. And the most that the government will do will simply give you the wherewithal in the form of a voucher to go shop and choose the school of your choice. But the same people who like food stamps often don't like school choice when it comes to education. So Yeah, uh, we certainly have a a degree of socialism that many people have accepted. You might say the post office is a kind of socialism, but let's not forget that some of the best uh, providers of the same service are not government monopolies, but private marketplace competitors. Right. So again, socialism does not have to mean nothing. Yeah. You can have certain uh, social uh, safety nets. But uh, you better be careful they don't become all enveloping, and you better be very careful how you finance them. We see that with Social Security, where they made a hash of it and put it in jeopardy unnecessarily. And uh, with health care, which is another subject we've discussed on podcasts in the past, how uh, we need more real free markets in health care, like the Surgery Center of Oklahoma, where uh, you get uh, better quality care at uh, less cost, which is the essence of a true free market system. That's right. And you might say that national defense is a kind of semi-socialized system because the government does it. But fortunately, the government doesn't do it the way the old Soviet Union did it, which is to say that uh, it makes its own tanks and guns and planes and government factories with government employees. I mean, our government buys those things from private competing producers who do a better job of it. Right. So getting back to your your book, understanding that, of course, uh, the lexicon has changed in the last uh, 2,000 years, you say your book's purpose is... uh, There's nothing to even hint that Jesus would support what today's socialists call for, increasing government power, redistributing wealth, and the like. And so uh, even though uh, the term was not in use then, let's go to uh, the Bible itself. And uh, you talk about three parables that are often cited as Jesus being sympathetic, even if the idea wasn't around, at least to the spirit of the idea that became called uh, socialism. You make the point he did focus on character and forgiveness, but let's start with uh, the parable of the vineyards. Okay. The parable of the workers in the vineyard is a great story told, of course, by Jesus himself. He told nearly 40 parables, and this one is one of three or four that have very strong uh, economic content and uh, economic implications. The owner of a vineyard, a very large vineyard apparently, Uh, hires workers at the start of a day, according to this parable, and he offers to pay them each one denarius, a Roman coin of that day. And then around noontime or so, he decides he's got to get more workers out in the field to bring the harvest in. So he hires another group of workers and offers to pay them each one denarius, even though since it's noontime, they're going to end up working fewer hours in the day than the first group. 
And then late in the day, presumably he realizes, wow, it's going to be dark in an hour and I've got to get uh, so many more grapes uh, brought in. He hires a final group of workers to work maybe an hour or so and offers them one denarius. And then later, all the workers gather to be paid. And the first group is very angry. According to the parable, they say to the man, this is unfair. You paid us for a full day's work, the same that you paid these other guys to work a few hours, or in the case of that last group, just one hour. That's unfair. Now, if Jesus were a socialist, he would probably have the estate owner in this uh, parable say something like, oh, well, you're right. Yeah, that's not fair. Let's, uh, let me re- redivide uh, uh, the wealth here today and make it a little bit more equal. But instead, the man says to the workers, it's my money. Didn't I offer you or didn't I give you what I offered you? Didn't you agree freely to accept? Basically, he says, get out of here. I did what I promised. And you engaged in a voluntary, peaceful contract. The terms were met. So this is a defense, uh, this parable, I think, of not only voluntary contract and private property, but I think it's a defense even of supply and demand, because an economist would explain this problem of having to hire workers and pay a premium at the end of a day in terms of that's probably what the employer had to do to get them to work. I mean, if you've already worked a day and it's now evening, not long before dark, you're ready to turn in. But this guy had to get them back out in the field. So he had to pay a premium. So there's supply and demand going on here, too. But there's nothing that's socialistic in the ethics or uh, any aspect of of that parable. And of course, the workers uh, were uh, taking a risk that the uh, vineyard owner might not need them at the end of the day. That's right. So they'd end up with nothing. Yeah, that's right. It's a, it's a capitalist parable uh, from start to finish. Now, what about uh, the parable of the talents? Yes, uh, this involves a wealthy man who was leaving town for a time, and he calls three men together uh, who work for him, and he says to each of them, I'm going to give you some of my uh, wealth in the form of talents, another currency of the day. And uh, it, by the way, the initial distribution was not equal. They didn't all get the same amount. He trusted them with different quantities. But he said, I'll be back later and uh, to see what you've done with the wealth that I've entrusted you with. And then when he comes back, he calls the three guys together and he says to the first man, what did you do with the talents I trusted you with? And this man says, well, you'll be happy with me. Uh, I buried them in the backyard to protect them. So I have for you just precisely the amount that you trusted me with. Well, he's actually upbraided, criticized by uh, the man. Basically, he says, what, you didn't do anything productive with what I trusted you with? That's, that's not a good thing. Then he asks the second guy, what did you do with what I trusted you with? And that man says, oh, you'll be happy with me. I doubled or tripled the wealth that you uh, trusted me with. I invested it. And look what I had. And he's praised. And then the third man says, basically, uh, hey, those first two guys are pikers. I turned what you gave me into 10 times what you uh, trusted me with. And this man is praised the highest in the parable. As a matter of fact, Jesus goes on to say, or have the estate owner say, we're going to take the money from the first guy and give it to the third guy because he knows how to produce wealth. Now, that is as capitalist and as anti-socialist as it gets. So in that sense, Jesus uh, wasn't a zero-sum person. 
you recognize, as we say today, the pie can grow. It's not fixed. Yes, exactly right. Now, uh, the third one you cite in your book, uh, the one very familiar, The Good Samaritan. Yeah, I'm amazed at how many people, Steve, have said to me, oh, yeah, The Good Samaritan story. Doesn't that mean that uh, we should have programs for the, for the needy, government programs? And I have to remind them, wait a minute. Remember what happened here. You have a man who's traveling on a road, the Samaritan, and he comes upon another man who's been beaten within an inch of his life, robbed. He's lying along the road. What does the Samaritan do? Well, he doesn't say to him, you need to find a, uh, your social worker. By the way, two other people had passed him by. That's right. Yeah, Levite and someone else, I forget, but they basically bureaucrats, and they passed him by, didn't help him at all. Well, the Samaritan does not put off this obligation he feels to help the man in need. He, of his own free will and of his own resources, chooses to help the man. If he had done any of those other things, if he had simply blown the man off and said, well, you know, this is government's responsibility, somebody else will take care of you, we would not know him today as the good Samaritan. We would think of him as the good-for-nothing Samaritan. But he's called good because of his own free will, forced by no one, he chooses to help the man in need. And uh, getting to uh, Jesus and the rich, yes. a lot of uh, examples cited that uh, Jesus had a jaundiced eye about the rich and socialists uh, would say, aha, he would want to take him down a notch or two. So uh, let's uh, start with the uh, story of the rich man admonished to sell possessions and give the uh, resources to the poor. Is, isn't that socialistic? Yeah, yeah. this story is a, a great one that, that illustrates that what was on Jesus's mind was not the size of your bank account, but rather what was really in your heart. And uh, the story you're referring to involves a rich ruler. This is recorded in two of the four Gospels, and it's the second one, I think, in Mark, perhaps, where it's revealed that this rich man is also a ruler. So he was a politician of some sort, notorious in that day for being uh, greedy and uh, eager to get as much of other people's money as they could get. In any event, uh, this man approaches Jesus and says, uh, Master, I, I want to uh, join your cause and be part of the inner circle here. How do I do that? How do I get salvation? And, and Jesus says to him, as a kind of test, I'm sure, sell everything you have and follow me. Well, no doubt Jesus knew what was in the man's heart ahead of time, and he fully expected that the man would say no, and that's exactly what he did. He said, no, no, I can't do that. No, you're not so important, Jesus, that I would do that. Uh, salvation is not so important to me that I would give up my earthly possessions, even though I can't take them with me anyway. So Jesus then turns to someone else who's present and says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. Socialists look at that and they say, ah, see, he's, he doesn't like wealthy people. But what Jesus is saying there is that with wealth comes temptations. He would say the same thing about power, which is what socialists, of course, are always trying to accumulate and concentrate. He's saying, handle your wealth properly. Keep your priorities in order. Don't love your wealth manage it, produce more of it for the good of all, but don't worship wealth. That takes your eyes off of what you should be worshiping, which is God. That's what Jesus is saying. It's not anti-rich. He's just saying, 
keep your priorities in order. Don't let the wealth get to you. Yeah, wealth wealth can corrupt like power, and uh, even adversity in life can be uh, in its own way uh, corrupting. Yes. And uh, it's an important point you make there that a lot of people got rich in those times, not by uh, setting up a software firm or opening up a franchise for McDonald's. They got it by getting a special dispensation from the government where they could forcibly uh, squeeze uh, resources out of the people. That's right. And uh, I know of nothing in any of Jesus's words in the New Testament that would suggest he would be in any way friendly to crony capitalism, to the use of government to get something at other people's expense. This was a man who believed profoundly in, in the gift of free will, of personal choice, of voluntarism. He believed that uh, a person's character is determined by what's in their heart and how they choose uh, voluntarily to interact with others, not by what they say or by what we might compel them to do, but rather what's in their heart. That is so central to the message of Jesus Christ. As you like to point out, not many socialists, if they really believe the government is charitable, yet none of them or very few of them write checks of donations to uh, the welfare department or the tax department each year. That's right. In fact, no matter what variant of socialism you're talking about, the welfare state aspect or the planning of an economy or the communalism of equal uh, wealth and so forth. None of that are things that socialists, people who believe in socialism, actually practice when they have a chance. I mean, there's nothing that says today that it would be illegal for you to round up your neighbors voluntarily and convince them to put all their earnings in a common pot and then have it distributed equally to the neighborhood. As long as it's voluntary, you could do that today. So I always say to socialists, if that's the, the kind of socialism you favor, what's, what's holding you back? Do it now. Uh, but the fact that they don't do it now and that they don't uh, write bigger checks than they have to to the government tells you something very revealing, Steve. It tells you that they may be less interested in the so-called good things that government does with the money it takes and more interested in just simply punishing somebody. Uh, no socialist today writes out voluntary checks to the government that they're not required to. They want the government to force everybody to do that because to them, I think it's more important that somebody be punished, that the wealthy, the successful uh, be dragooned into their scheme than it is that the government actually help people with the proceeds. Well, let's uh, go to that right now. We're going to come to it later. Envy, covetousness. You say that unfortunately characterizes too many of the socialists, not the idealists, the young people, but uh, some of the leaders who should know better, but yet they're always angry. They're always looking for victims, yeah. not f trying to figure out, okay, how do we uh, help people have them get better health care and that kind of thing? Yeah, envy, uh, Steve, I think is one of the most corrosive attitudes or mentalities, whatever you want to call it, uh, ever in the history of humankind. The moment you let uh, envy get to you and to govern your thinking and your actions, then you start counting the other guy's blessings instead of yours. It drives you to the point where you endorse schemes to punish those who are better off than you are. There's a passage in the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament that plainly says envy uh, rots the bones. Uh, there are many, uh, in fact, uh, prohibitions on the practice or the psychology of envy throughout both Old and New Testaments. In the New Testament, you have in the book of Luke, 
an occasion where a man approaches Jesus with a redistribution request. He says to Jesus, uh, Master, speak to my brother that he divideth the inheritance with me. Uh, you could take that to mean, hey, I don't think I got a fair shake. I should get more. Maybe you should equalize this. Use your power for me to get me more. And Jesus didn't say, well, uh, I'll look into it. No, he rebuked the man on the spot for his envy. His reply was, man, who made me a judge or divider over you? Take heed and beware of covetousness. That first phrase, who made me a judge or divider over you, is something I, you know, we'll know we have won the day for freedom when someday even the most socialist politicians get up and say, hey, you know, who made me a judge or divider over everybody else? I've been doing that for all these years, trying to take from some and give to others, but who gave me the right to do that? I'm going to quit doing it. <laughs> I don't know when that might happen, but uh, I look forward to that day. Well, you make the point that government gives, but it first must take. It doesn't create, it takes. That's right. It doesn't have anything to give anybody except what it first takes from somebody. It's not a fountain of free goodies. It isn't just manna from heaven. It is a, an instrument of redistribution uh, through the uh, use of, of political force. Now, another uh, story that's uh, frequently cited uh, by those who say at heart, uh, Jesus was a socialist, of course, was the money changers in the temple. Yes. And uh, what he said sounded like he was uh, anti-commerce, but uh, relate the story and then put it in context, what was really happening there. Okay, yes. Uh, Jesus, when he comes to Jerusalem, uh, finds that people uh, referred to in the Bible as money changers, people who are making an exchange of one currency into another and perhaps selling a wide variety of goods, are doing so on the grounds of the temple, which is the God's house, the house of worship. And Jesus drives uh, the money changers from the temple in a very angry fashion, and socialists like to say, ah, see, he did it just because they had money and they were trying to make more, and he was against that. But if you read the New Testament, you'll find, if you look at it from start to finish, that there is no instance of Jesus driving money changers from a marketplace or from a bank. He drove them from the temple, the house of God, the house of worship. And I like to tell people that, uh, you know, where you do certain things really does matter. If you show up at a funeral with a kazoo and start playing Happy Days Are Here Again, somebody's going to ask you to leave. And it doesn't mean that they don't like your kazoo playing. It just means you're doing the wrong thing in the wrong place. That's what Jesus was essentially saying when he drove the money changers from uh, a house of worship. And another one which you cited in the movie you helped us uh, do, and Money We Trust, the PBS documentary, that is uh, Money is the Root of All Evil. Yes. Walk us through that one. Okay. Yes. Uh, uh, Often uh, people think, because uh, they've been told so often, that uh, the Bible teaches that money is the root of all evil. There is no such phrase anywhere in the Bible. What they are referring to, as the Apostle Paul clearly delineated, was that the love of money is what the Bible says is the root of all evil. The love of money, and there is a crucial difference here. What the Bible was saying, and Jesus himself said this, is that if you allow money to rule you instead of you rule it, if you worship money instead of the God that brought you into being, you're doing an evil thing. 
and it will lead to all sorts of other evil things. I mean, could you imagine anybody worth his salt knowing the least amount of economics condemning the medium of exchange as an evil thing? I mean, it's what makes possible <laughs> trades that improve the standard of living and that could never happen without money. I mean, if we didn't have money, every trade would be a in the form of barter, which is conducive to only the most primitive types of exchange. So it wasn't money that Jesus or early Christians were opposing. They were opposing the misuse of it, the worship of it, the prioritizing of it over uh, more important things, such as uh, the worship of our Creator. Yeah, well, uh, I like to compare money to a ticket to an event or a claim check. Yeah. It is simply a claim on a product and service. It's not wealth in and of itself. It makes possible the exchange of resources. Yes, absolutely. Easily. And I would guess that Jesus, if he ever addressed uh, inflation, would probably condemn it as a form of theft, uh, the multiplication of, of money simply to uh, so government can spend more. I can't conceive of how Jesus could ever endorse that, given everything that he said about money and about theft. Now, another point you make is that uh, Jesus never said that uh, you couldn't possess wealth and serve God at the same time. That's right. Uh, in fact, Jesus would uh, take this as a, a very important test of one's character. Can you magnify wealth? Can you leave the world, physically speaking, materially speaking, a better place because you were in it? And at the same time, keep your priorities in order and recognize the importance of uh, worshiping your creator and keeping his commandments. If you're able to do that, and admittedly, it's not easy. But if you're able to do that, I think Jesus would say, you're a good fellow all the way around. Well done, thy good and faithful servant, I'm sure he would say. He was not against the accumulation of wealth. He was against the worship of it or the theft of it. You know, keep in mind uh, the famous story of the 5,000, the feeding of the 5,000. There's a multitude of people who come to hear Jesus, and they're all very hungry. And the disciples are worried. They're saying to Jesus, what do we do? We've only got three loaves of bread and two fishes here. We haven't got enough to feed these 5,000 people. Well, Jesus doesn't say to them, well, there's a neighborhood of rich people nearby. Go take what they've got and bring it here. Or, or go rob a bank or a marketplace and bring all the loot here, and we'll give it to the people who need it. No, he did the very the, the most capitalist thing, you might say. Using his own unique and divine power, he magnified wealth. He didn't pilfer a crumb from anybody else. He magnified the wealth uh, and thereby uh, fed the 5,000. That was with the disciple Philip, was that? Yes, he turned to Philip and said, and the Bible makes it plain that he was just testing Philip. He said, what are we going to do about this? And Philip doesn't know, but Jesus knew what he was going to do. And he solved the problem, not in a socialist way, but through a, a kind of a divine capitalism, you might say, by magnifying material wealth uh, through the unique power that he had. Now, let's uh, just hit the, what's called by some the Sermon of the Plain. Yes. Where uh, Jesus says, blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, but woe to you who are rich. Walk us through that. Yes, you know, this shows, as is the case uh, so often when discussing uh, the New Testament, you're talking about a society of people some 2,000 years ago. Context is extremely important. Right. Uh, in so many ways, you know, I mean, you, you might say, well, why didn't Jesus just uh, tell everybody to revolt against the Romans, for instance? Well, because uh, he was at the start of a new faith and was not about to jeopardize uh, 
the early followers by being extinguished uh, by, by those Roman authorities. So context in, in every case is, is very important. In the Sermon on the Plain, uh, Jesus is not in any way saying that there's something special about the poor that we should uh, venerate them more than other people. Not at all. He was saying that each of us as an individual should be generous. He never called for government to come in and force you to be, never called for the use of political force to make you generous at all. But be cognizant of the needs of people around you, especially in that day. Again, context is important. The rich tended to be a small number of politically well-connected people who didn't allow the kind of entrepreneurship that we know today really allows for the creation of wealth. And then the great majority of people were poor and downtrodden and oppressed, both by the authorities of Judea and the Roman authorities. So Jesus was urging people of their own free will and the goodness and generosity of their hearts to be helpful to those around them. But he never said, instead of you doing it, throw that responsibility onto the politicians. Now, another thing uh, sometimes socialists use is the uh, phrase, uh, render unto Caesars what is Caesars, render unto God what is God. And they say that meant that Jesus didn't mind heavy taxation. You know, you, do, you obey the civil authorities and you can uh, worship God at the same time, but you, you fork over the goods to the civil authorities. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it's so absurd to think that uh, this man of peace of love, of um, support for uh, free will, that this uh, man would ever essentially say that whatever Caesar claims is his, must be his, you should give it to him, no matter how much of it he wants, even if he wants it all, and no matter what he puts the money toward. And that's ridiculous. This was actually a very clever response from Jesus to the Pharisees, who were always trying to trick him. They wanted to catch him in something they could run to the Romans and say, ah, look, he's, he's sanctioning uh, or endorsing uh, tax evasion. So they produced this coin. It has the image of Caesar on it. They want to know, what do we do with this? And Jesus's reply, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, is extremely clever. He's saying, maybe it's Caesar's, maybe it isn't. He left that decision ultimately to others to decide. And so he, he could have been an anarchist who favored no government at all. And that phrase would have been perfectly compatible with what he said. He's, he's just saying it's kind of a defense of property rights. If it really does belong to Caesar and he wants it, well, then give it to him. But if it doesn't, there's nothing that says you have to give it to him. So th this idea that by saying render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's is somehow an endorsement of anything that Caesar wants to grab. And for any purpose, even the killing of foreigners in an overseas war is ridiculous. Jesus would never endorse that. You also cite uh, what Luke said about so-called experts and uh, lawyers oppressing the people, that they were not in love with government per se. Yeah, you know, throughout the New Testament, you have endless uh, put-downs and, <laughs> and criticisms of government officials, of, of greedy rulers, of of uh, potentates and, and emperors and, uh, and so forth. And tax collectors, by the way. I don't know of a single place in the New Testament where tax collectors are referred to in a favorable light. I mean, <laughs> in fact, somebody, I can't remember exactly where it is, but uh, someone says to Jesus uh, or says about Jesus, uh, what is it with this guy? He, he hangs around 
prostitutes and tax collectors, <laughs> kind of lumping them into the same category. And then Jesus says, well, those are the people who most need my help. <laughs> well, the thing to remember about in those days, tax collectors is uh, France had it even in more modern times, what was called tax farming. Somebody would bid with the Roman government or any government to collect taxes. Uh, they would agree to give Rome a certain amount and anything extra they collected, they could pocket. So it was uh, an extortion racket, not even uh, the kind of tax collection we have today. It was just sheer robbery. That's right. And the government that made those contracts with those private uh, uh, people to go get their tax revenue, they didn't put limits on them. They just said, do whatever you have to to go get it. And so a lot of times they were very oppressive and very brutal in collecting uh, money for the government. And uh, needless to say, Steve, we should probably point out that unfortunately in uh, Roman occupied Judea, they did not have a flat tax. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Um, <laughs> should have written the book 2,000 years ago, but I didn't yeah. get around to it. <laughs> so uh, one of the points you make that uh, will uh, stir some people is uh, you say socialism nullifies the golden rule. Explain the golden rule. We all know what it is, but it was an essential part of uh, Jesus' ministry and message. And uh, how uh, socialism, by the resort to force rather than appeals to the heart, kind of nullifies it. Exactly. The golden rule, as everyone knows, and which, by the way, is codified in various different ways in almost every major faith, it basically says, uh, do unto others what you would have others do unto you. In other words, don't abuse people, don't be wrong to them, don't steal from them, don't do bad things to them, unless you expect that uh, they will come right back and do it to you. So don't do that in the first instance. Well, socialism does do harm to people. It initiates force against people. It goes after people not because they've actually done uh, something like commit theft or violence to someone, but simply because they've produced great wealth and enjoyed the patronage of many customers. It goes after them simply because they possess more than the socialists think they should have. So that isn't the essence of the golden rule. It's just the opposite. And what they want to do to you, what socialists want to do to you if you're a successful person, is something that they would never let you do to them. And... Uh Near the end of the book, you make reference to uh, two theologians, one C.S. Lewis and the other J. Gresham Machen. Yes. And uh, Lewis, as we all know, Chronicles of Narnia, but uh, he was much more. What, what attracted you to these two individuals and what messages in essence did they have that attracted you to them? Especially uh, Machen, who was uh, very profoundly religious, but he was opposed to uh, requiring prayer in the public schools. That's right. Well, both these men were profoundly important Christian thinkers of the last century. I think two of the, of the greatest Christian thinkers of the last century. Most of what they wrote overwhelmingly was uh, theological in nature, dealt with eschatology and salvation and so forth. But whenever they departed from those more religious things and talked more about the earthly relationships between government and people, they understood very, very well and articulated this profoundly well, uh, that the concentration of earthly power in flawed human beings, and that's every one of us, is deadly, deadly to liberty, deadly to uh, economic well-being. Both these men understood that. They recognized that uh, humankind is 
we are fallen beings in a sense in the, in the Christian uh, lexicon, meaning that uh, we have an essential sinful nature. And the last thing you should ever want to do is to ignore that and concentrate uh, political force, political power in the hands of these imperfect human beings. That's why both men were such great believers and fans of America's founders, uh, because they saw that those Men as well recognize the importance of dispersing power through things like checks and balances and separation of powers. Um, so I think C.S. Lewis and J. Gresham Machen understood the nature of humans better than just about anybody. And therefore, that led them to reject the uh, concentration of, of earthly political power. Machen was uh, especially consistent in this regard. He even opposed uh, prohibition for all the right reasons. And you might think, well, how could such a morally upright man be in favor of letting people drink whatever they want? Well, because he believed in liberty and he thought it wasn't the duty of the government to tell you what you could drink and when you could drink it. He testified in the 1920s in Congress against a proposal uh, to create a federal department of education. Can you believe that? There was such a proposal, what, uh, 50 plus years before we actually got it, uh, unfortunately. And he opposed it. And he said, if you create a federal department of education, you will centralize important decisions about education in the hands of faceless, nameless bureaucrats. It will undermine the uh, control of local schools by local people the uh, authority of parents. Uh, this is not the proper duty of government. Uh, again, because he understood human beings' fallen nature and the great danger of concentrating political power in their hands. Which gets to uh, the last chapter of your book, talking about the iron fist in a velvet glove. Yeah, that's what socialism really is. It's the uh, velvet glove because it's on the outside, because it's always sold positively. You know, socialists don't run around saying, put me in charge because I really want to run your business. I know how to run your life better than you do. I want to take a lot of money from you. And I want to force all kinds of programs on you because I know they're good for you. They never say that. They talk in terms of, oh, we're going to help people. We care for them. We're going to give them security and what have you. That's the, the velvet glove. But because socialism cannot do any of that, even remotely uh, achieve any of that, without uh, the resort to political force, the iron fist is always inside that velvet glove. That's the idea that, okay, uh, we're not just requesting your participation here. We're actually going to compel it. And uh, if you don't like it, tough beans. We have the force of government behind us. We'll make you do and make you pay what we think you should do and should pay. That's ultimately what socialism always is. It's, you have to strip off the velvet glove and to reveal the uh, quintessential essence of socialism, the iron fist beneath. So let's uh, close with something you do in the book, and that is that oftentimes some of these socialist leaders always seem angry and uh, mad about something. And he said, all of us, whether we're whatever we are, should just step back once in a while and look at the world with awe and wonder. Yeah. And uh, what we have today, take a handheld, which uh, is a virtual supercomputer in our hand. If you'd said 25 years ago, grandma could operate a supercomputer, you'd have probably been uh, sent to the examination room. Yet here we are for a handful of dollars. You've got the whole world at your fingertips. So uh, walk us through uh, this uh, holiday season. 
step back, put the woes of the world aside for a moment and consider what we have, count our blessings, you might say. Yeah, absolutely. Life isn't just all politics, and thank God it isn't, because politics is is so full of strife and conflict and shrinking the pie and divvying things up differently and so forth. Uh, But all around us, we have men and women who are daily making our lives better. And they're doing so not because the government has told them they have to do that, but because of the incentives of the uh, private enterprise system, the fact that people in business, typically they're, they're not in business because they want to accumulate piles of gold coins and play with them in their basement, but because they enjoy the genuine feeling of fulfillment that comes from solving problems and inventing and innovating and making life better and having lots of happy customers. Well, that's that's just fantastic. I mean, I walk into Walmart and there's all these people who work there that don't even know me. And what do they do? They come up and say, can I help you? What are you looking for? Oh, have you tried this? Or maybe this is what uh, would help you. They're all looking for all kinds of ways to help me. And that's because uh, of the profit motive and the self-interest motive of a productive free enterprise system. And uh, to me, that just never ceases to be awesome. I mean, every day, so many people working to make my life better. And 99% of them, I don't even know. So there's so much to be thankful for in this holiday season as there is every day of the year. And it all stems from productive people producing for others because of the incentive of their own self-interest. Larry Reed, thank you very much for joining us and uh, enjoy this holiday season. And hopefully our uh, Blessings will multiply in the new year ahead. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.